0: there welcome to the from lab to launch podcast by qualio where we share inspiring stories from the people on the front lines of life sciences tune in and leave inspired to bring your life saving products to the world hi everyone welcome to today's show from lab to launch the podcast has been on a bit of a holiday during the summer months but we're excited to be back at it again Today we're talking to Ben Lightburn, CEO and co-founder of Filament Health, an exclusively natural psychedelic drug development company. Filament's mission is to get safe, natural psychedelics in the hands of everyone who needs them as soon as possible. And their approach is what was so unique about them. This interview was very interesting on many fronts. They're focused on novel extraction technologies, purification technologies, and standardization technologies that are GMP compliant and FDA approved. It's a tall order when you think about natural extractions, but they seem to be doing it. Ben shares his insight about building a core team that's comfortable operating in a startup environment. He shares Filament's approach to patenting and clinical trial process, as well as the regulation landscape for psychedelics. And he takes head-on common misconceptions about natural pharmaceuticals. And yes, I use the word natural and pharmaceuticals in the same sentence there. Overall, a lot of great takeaways and wisdom from our friend, Ben, who's approaching something very unique in a very unique industry at Filament Health. Let's get to it. Ben, to help us better understand Filament Health and where you're coming from, just tell us a little bit more about your company mission and your product.
1: Filament Health is an exclusively natural psychedelics company. So we probably we've seen a lot in the in the news about the the kind of resurgence, the renaissance of the of the psychedelics industry. But what struck myself and and some of my uh, former colleagues from from previous companies is that there there didn't really seem to be many companies focused exclusively on 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 naturally extracted uh, psychedelic substances. Right. It's important to remember that these psychedelic compounds that we hear about psilocybin, LSD, you know, they all were once natural compounds, right? They were found in nature. Over time, it's become common practice to synthesize these uh, compounds or recreate them in a in a lab uh, a syn- synthetic process. But we believe very strongly that it's important that there be a natural option because, after all, people prefer natural products whenever whenever they can get them. Right? There's not there's not too many people that prefer synthetic caffeine to a cup of coffee. Is the is a sort of really <laughs> okay. really simple analogy. So so what we did is we we started a company and our, our mission, as you said, is to bring safe standardized fda approved naturally extracted psychedelic compounds to the market and we don't know yet you know what form exactly that that market will take it likely will be there will be a pharmaceutical component but we're also seeing like in various states that state regulated markets will also be opening up i think pennsylvania just announced a a bill or, or a ballot measure just the other day similar to cannabis right where you might have some kind of state level regulated market in the absence of some uh, federal approval so we think naturals have a have a have many advantages over over synthetics not least of which as i mentioned is the, is the consumer preference for natural but also because when you make a natural extract you extract more than just the primary compound so the example from magic mushrooms is well when you make a magic mushroom extract you extract more than just the psilocybin You extract uh, several other compounds that are naturally present in the mushroom. And it's possible that this natural combination of different compounds, after all, did evolve in nature for for some purpose, probably. It's possible that therapeutically these these mixtures could be more beneficial than just the the single compound synthesized product. So that's kind of like the 30-second overview or the three-minute and (laughs) 30-second overview of filament and what we're all about.
0: Yeah, very awesome. So tell me a little bit about how you got started in this field You know, with natural extracts. Uh, you kind of mentioned before we jumped on the call that your team had, had almost done the same thing before, right? Where you built and sold a similar company. So walk me through kind of how you got into this space and, and what led to the company mission.
1: It's a really good question. and I often wonder why I found myself uh, in this relatively esoteric and narrow field of botanical extraction. And even narrower than that, it's actually in the field of commercializing novel botanical extraction technology so that I, I actually got into it just totally by coincidence. I, I was looking for a job as an undergrad, uh, getting my, my physics degree at, at university, and I was put in touch with someone that had a startup company, which was commercializing a new kind of botanical extraction technology that was using microwaves to extract cancer drugs from different kinds of plant species. And the rest was history. So I, I began working there after I graduated. I, I stayed in the field. I, I went back to school. I got a business degree. And then I joined another botanical extraction company. This was called a Matza Innovation. And this was a company that had a technology to replace solvent extraction with just using uh, water and getting the same or better results. That company, we we sold it in, in 2018. and with some of the former colleagues that i had uh, we were really all looking for a new job because we didn't really enjoy working for the acquirer that's where we kind of spotted the opportunity in psychedelics to bring all the experience that we had gained making extracts for the cosmetics industry the nutritional supplement industry the food f- flavor fragrance industry bringing all that experience uh to bear in the psychedelics industry and also kind of realizing that there was an opportunity because there, there weren't very many other people looking at, at doing things that way in, in, for psychedelics.
0: With that core team uh, that you had, another question that kind of just came to mind is we talked to a lot of companies were hiring and trying to build their core team as they're building their companies and trying to launch their their products to market. Getting that core team is so fundamental. Can you talk a little bit how you decided the type of talent you looked through to build that team there's a lot of things you need across product development, across bioengineering. You need quality folks as well, you know, finance. There's a, a ton of talent that needs to be filled in with somebody starting um, a life sciences company today. So walk me through how you built your team and and how you think about that.
1: One of the main reasons for starting this company was to have an opportunity to work together with my colleagues from the former company. Really? Because at this former company, we, we built it from pre-pilot all the way to full commercialization, even selling the company. And at the time, I didn't realize probably well enough how special and, and how lucky we were to have such a good team with such good chemistry and, and, and such good capabilities. It was only after we sold the company and we found ourselves embraced in the grip of a completely foreign culture um, from a much bigger company that I saw our precious team and culture and chemistry kind of all disappearing. And it was only then that I realized what we had lost. And hmm. so team is just by far the number one most important thing when you're when you're building a company, any company, uh, especially in life sciences. As you said, you need experts in so many different fields. You need so many people, different work different people working together in concert with each other that all respect each other, that, that know each other's strengths and weaknesses and know when to push buttons and know when to, when to back off. So I think now having been able to kind of recreate with four or five people from that company kind of recreate some of that magic that we previously had and get the old band back together again for (laughs) for an encore has been a, a real pleasure and it makes it much easier. When you're expanding the team if there's already sort of like a core culture and chemistry already established it's easier to decide when you're adding pieces to the puzzle whether they will fit or not it's much easier than when you're just kind of establishing something out of the ether and, and you don't know what form it's going to take and you don't know what kind of culture there's going to be we had the pleasure of being able to kind of seed it with an already sort of half formed culture
0: yeah that that's really great i mean so much of the companies that you work with come from your personal network Those are the kind of people you want to work with anyway. So I guess from that lesson there, what advice would you give to somebody who is trying to build out their team or trying to establish that initial startup culture that's so important in terms of recruiting other, you know, other team members? Is there anything that you've done at Filament Health that has helped establish that culture that other entrepreneurs in the space could learn from or apply in their companies?
1: Team building in the startup environment is, is challenging, right? I mean, you... In in an interview, you know, you say, "Oh, are you used to wearing many hats? Are you used to a fast-paced work environment?" Are, right. Oh, yes, yes, for sure, definitely, I am. Yes, one hundred percent. But then, when it comes when it comes time to actually do those things, is the person actually that kind of person? Again, especially in life sciences. So, you know, finding the right person who can be both your GMP compliance officer and also be comfortable working in a startup environment and knowing when corners can be cut and when they can't be cut and when we can bend down to like the startup environment and when we can't, it's very hard. So advice I would give is take chances on people. The main thing I do is I, you know, throw, throw people head first into the fire, right? Is like, give them a chance to, to sink or swim, give them, the, give them the support that they need But you need to find out really quickly whether whether they are suitable for a startup environment. And if they aren't, that's okay, Right. Not everybody is. Most people aren't right. Aren't comfortable Mm -hmm. enough with the uncertainty that it brings. And it's like, oh, well, you know, my paycheck might not arrive or like, when do we get our benefits and all this, you know, questions like that quickly, you know, belie perhaps maybe somebody that is better suited for, shall we say, like a, a more structured work environment. But, if you can find someone that thrives in that environment, you hold on to them for dear life. You find these people, you give them everything they need to succeed, and then you you get out of their way and and, and let them shine
0: so I've heard other places in uh, other books that are business uh, material saying that it's okay to hire somebody, but then if you just know it's not going to work out, it's actually to the person's benefit to let them go early too. You know, if you give them a chance, but then after talking, a lot of times people know, like, I'm not, I'm not good for this environment. And so you coming to them as a leader and saying, Hey, listen, I don't sure this is going to work out. Let's talk about this. A lot of times that can be very alleviating for people. So uh, kind of what you said there, throw them in, see like, you know, how they, if, if they're comfortable doing, it, if they can do the work. And then from there, making a decision that's mutual.
1: I agree a hundred percent. And, and over time I've learned that almost you should look forward to these kinds of like tough HR conversations. Because 99.9% of the time, the other person agrees with you 100%. Like, mm-hmm. look, it's not working out. I agree. Like, okay, great. We agree. Like, thank you for the, you know, the three months that you've been here. It, it, it's been great getting to know you. Like, I wish you all the best. Like, we're going to recommend you for this and that and the other thing. And there's usually a sense of mutual relief and understanding. And so you, you like I said, you. Just dealing with that issue, getting them into an environment where they're more suited for, and then opening up that spot potentially for someone that can thrive in that spot. It you gotta sort of treat it as a not as a celebration, but like you you don't want to treat it as like a thing to be avoided. You want to try to address it head on.
0: Yeah, wise words there. And looking at your team on your website, you have a very well-rounded team, like the management team there, the advisors, there's a lot of people, board directors. You've got a lot of great people on your team. So it seems like you're doing a lot of things well there. I didn't want to go too much into that. I feel like we went into talent. (laughs) You know, this isn't a recruiting podcast, but there's a lot of good insights there. And it's something that I wanted to kind of double click on. Another interesting thing about your company is you have one of the first GMP facilities in the world They also have Health Canada dealer's license. So how'd you go about that? And like, it sounds like you're trying to bring a lot of things in-house, which is, you know, one approach, Uh, some of the people will outsource it. So walk me through your your thinking and
1: doing that. So we we knew that our strength would be in the manufacturing and and generating intellectual property on the technologies that we establish in order to do that manufacturing. And to do that, you need to have the manufacturing in-house, right? You're you're not gonna you're not gonna use a a CMO and then also have like total control and know and know what's and know what's going on. And we also knew that from our previous expertise in getting facilities built and getting licensing and and getting manufacturing up and running. We knew that this would be a competitive advantage. So why not, as you said, double click on that and press forward to our advantage. Now, now here we are today, as you said, we're we're one of the only companies, maybe only a a handful in the world that can make GMP grade uh, psychedelic substances, natural or synthetic, right? Because they're controlled substances, you need a special license from the DEA in the United States, from Health Canada and in canada which is allowed which allows you to manufacture these these controlled substances so having that plus the gmp capabilities to get them into human clinical trials that sets us apart how did we get to this point you know relatively quickly well again with our experience in getting these kinds of facilities up and running i mean i've, I've uh, probably at this point not single-handedly, but have been involved in the construction of you know two or three, maybe four botanical extraction facilities. I mean, we know what to look for. we know what kinds of pitfalls to avoid. We know how to communicate with regulatory authorities um, because we've we've done it before. so I would just um chalk it up to our experience having having done the same thing previously.
0: another thing that I, I've seen on your website is your patent family and your in your process there, and you mentioned it there, like you're you know you can get a lot of these things into human clinical trials, you know, relatively easily compared to, you know, other, other companies out there. So tell us more about how you went through that process and like your, your patent family and your clinical trial process. If somebody wanted to do that themselves, like you're doing, what are some things they should look out for? What are some things that you would tell them?
1: One of the realizations that kind of surprised us as we, you know, we, we've commercialized a lot of plant extracts before and you know, when you go to make green tea extract, you search in the literature about green tea extract and there's thousands of papers and journals and things that tell you everything you need to know. For natural psychedelics, that that's not the case. There is a real lack of, of literature out there. So that surprised us. But also what surprised us is that a lot of the things we are discovering in the lab was actually counter to what a lot of the published literature was.
0: Interesting, uh, so can you give that- me an example
1: of that? An example uh, of that is it's been commonly described to make a psilocybin mushroom extract to to just do a cold water extraction through experimentation. And with proper analysis in the lab, we've established that cold water extraction does not work at all. Mm -hmm. There are things that happen in the magic mushroom extraction that causes the, when you extract with cold water, um, that causes the psilocybin actually to degrade into other forms and eventually into non-bioactive forms. So this was surprising to us, but it also presented an opportunity. If there's very little, very, very little literature and if what, some of what's out there is actually wrong, well, here's our chance to, to develop processes which, for the first time, can provide you know, stable, standardized, natural extracts of psilocybin and other natural psychedelic species. So what we decided to do was file for patent protection on, on some of these technologies that, that like I said, which for the first time, have, have yielded stable, repeatable, uh, GMP-grade, standardized, highly standardized natural psychedelic extracts. And we've we've actually had pretty good correspondence back and forth with the patent examiners. And we're, we're quite hopeful to, to have some issue patents in the near future relating to, to these technologies. And so we're talking about extraction technologies, purification technologies, uh, standardization technologies for controlling the ratios of different alkaloids that come out of the extraction, as well as different compositions of matter necessary for making these extracts into deliverable forms for human consumption. Of course, those go into our our clinical trials. Early on, we knew that running clinical trials in-house was probably a little bit outside of of the, the scope of our capacity at the time. So what we decided to do was partner with uh, a leading psychedelics research institute at the University of California, San Francisco, and we've partnered with them to run all of our, all of our clinical trials. They have a lot of experience running clinical trials in, in psychedelics, and they were very excited to, to work with our first ever natural psychedelic uh, clinical trials. We have two clinical trials, which will be running up, in the, uh, up and running in the next couple of months. The first is a a phase one trial, which will um, look at our naturally extracted psilocybin and compare it head to head with a compound that we've identified in the magic mushroom that we believe will be more therapeutically beneficial than psilocybin. This is a a compound that's not been administered in any clinical trial ever before, Hmm. natural or synthetic. So we're we're very excited about about the potential of, of potentially showing that maybe there's more to magic mushrooms than just psilocybin right i mean as i said earlier there there are many compounds in the magic mushroom it's very possible that one of them is better than psilocybin i mean there's no rule that says that psilocybin is the best psychedelic so that's the phase one trial the phase two trial will administer our naturally extracted psilocybin in uh, patients with major depressive disorder and the innovative thing that we're doing in that trial is we're, we're using ketamine as a, um, as a sort of very active control condition in an effort to increase the amount of blinding and, and placebo control that, that can occur in the clinic, because that's when it's a major problem that's holding back all psychedelics research is, is the fact that there's been relatively little in the way of effective placebo controls because mm-hmm. the psychedelics, Elicits such a strong hallucinogenic response in, in in the clinic. It's possible for the for the patients and the therapists to know which group got the placebo dose and which which group got got the uh, the hallucinogenic dose. So by administering sort of ketamine as a as a as a placebo, which produces a similar hallucinogenic response, we expect to be able to to uh, preserve the blinding of the uh, the therapists and the uh, and the patients.
0: Oh, interesting! I never would have thought that that would have been an issue in clinical trials. Is is the the blind uh, aspect of it for the researchers interesting? Yep. Yeah. Um, well,
1: and so that that leads to something called the expectation bias, right? So, yeah, the people in the people that are in a psychedelics trial for the treatment of depression, so they already have some idea that psychedelics might help them with their depression, which is great. The problem is. If they then know whether they got the psychedelic dose or the, or the placebo dose, if they know they got the psychedelic, they will then expect their depression to get better. Depression is actually quite susceptible to this uh, expectation bias, as are psychedelics. There's cases of, of people reporting that they got high on psychedelics, even though they didn't get a psychedelic at all. They were just told they got a psychedelic. So it, it's very important that we can hmm. employ kind of, Innovative, high-quality clinical research tech uh, or, or uh, techniques, I should say, like this, in order to you know further the evidence for psych- psychedelic therapies of of all kinds, not just for ours. Actually,
0: you mentioned this a little bit earlier, and I, I'm just curious how how do you compare yourself to other things in the industry, like cannabis, for example? You mentioned the regulatory of state by state on the cannabis industry. I'm assuming there's similar state by state regulations for psychedelics as well, but like. As we've looked at how cannabis has been evolving in the market over the last decade or so, do you see something similar happening in, in your arm of the industry? If you were to try to look into a magic ball and forecast, you know, five, 10 years down the road, where do you see things landing and how, how do you compare yourself compared to what we've seen in the past?
1: That is the, the million dollar or the or the billion dollar question. Um, <laughs> I think that in, in at least in the United States, the, the biggest difference with the cannabis rollout is that in psychedelics specifically for psilocybin, you actually do have the FDA seeming to be a proponent of pharmaceutical legalization of psilocybin. There are a couple of phase two FDA approved psilocybin uh, trials underway. And the FDA has actually given what's called um, breakthrough therapy designation to psilocybin, which kind of gives it like a a gold star like stamp of approval and, and, and means that it can be uh, ushered through the approval process quicker, so the, the the FDA is kind of signaling that they that they like psilocybin, that they think it's an effective treatment, if safe and effective treatment. And and you didn't have any of that with with cannabis, so that that presents an issue. You know, if it becomes federally legalized as a pharmaceutical, will these state markets that are opening up will they be allowed to exist? Because they're being set up as a kind of alternative way to the medical pharmaceutical pathway that that is emerging, because people in those states and the people behind these ballot measures are afraid that if it's only the pharmaceutical medical market that distributes these psychedelics, well, that will lead to very high costs and low access. And if there's, you know, millions of people that can stand to benefit from these psychedelics, should we have them kind of in this very expensive sort of low accessibility distribution model as they feel is represented by the, the medical pharmaceutical uh, distribution framework. And that's why they're, the, they're proponents of a, an alternative state regulated market system, where there's a system of, of therapists and clinics that aren't doctors and it's not pharmaceuticals. And so the idea is to give more access to more people. Incidentally, we at Filament, we tend to agree. And, and we also think that in these sort of state regulated markets, that aren't pharmaceutical markets. That that people will prefer natural products, just because again, like I said, people prefer natural. These are the backers of these kinds of markets are you know already you know connected to the underground world, and the underground world is all using natural product, right? They're not they're not administering pharmaceutical, synthetic psilocybin. They're using magic mushrooms essentially, right? And mm. so it will be a natural choice for them to use a magic mushroom extract rather than a rather than a synthetic product.
0: Yeah. Thanks for walking through all that. It's just a question that came up as you're talking about it. And that is the billion dollar question. If we can solve that, then Phil uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, will be know, in a very, yeah. a
0: very good place. I've really enjoyed the conversation today. We're kind of running up at the, at the end of time here, but two more questions if you have time. One question is, what are perhaps some common misconceptions people have about a natural psychedelic solution? Because there are a lot of hesitancy in the market and just generally with consumers around cannabis and stuff. Um, I can see some of that applying as well here. Like, what are some of the common misconceptions that, from a, a branding or marketing standpoint, you need to overcome so that people feel comfortable with what you're doing?
1: That's a great question. There are a number of uh, commonly held misconceptions, I, I would call them, around natural. The first and foremost is is people commonly assume that natural means that it can't be pharmaceutical. So they don't think that natural products can be can become pharmaceutical products, and that's not true. That's not true at all. In fact, over 40% of all pharmaceuticals that get approved have some kind of natural origin of, of some kind or another. Another anecdote is that the largest selling cancer drug of all time is actually a natural extract, right? Few, few people mm. know that, right? That natural products form a very, very important piece uh, of the traditional pharmaceutical market. So, so that that's first and foremost, the, 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 the misconception that we battle against. And then there are others like that, natural products are too variable, they can't be standardized, and they're not GMP. Again, that's just not true that natural, botanical raw materials, of course, because they grow in nature, they're not 100% uniform, they're not synthetic, they're, they're they're not robots, they are, you know, living organisms, and they all differ. But that's where a process of extraction, where you extract all of the target compounds out of the raw material, and then you, you purify them, and then you standardize them so that you can have an exact repeatable dose every time. And, and in so doing, you end up with a standardized GMP product. So that's another misconception. And then the last one would probably be cost. People assume that growing mushrooms and extracting them is very expensive. But in fact, what we're showing with our modeling is that it will be much cheaper than chemical synthesis. I mean, nature is is fantastically efficient at these little mushrooms. They They grow in the dark, right? Like, they want to grow and they produce these alkaloids inside of them at relatively decent concentrations. It's just a matter of knowing how to get them out, how to get them out efficiently and how to standardize them. Why not let nature do the heavy lifting and we just do like a little bit of refinement at the end. So I would say those are the, those are mm-hmm. the, the three misconceptions that natural, you know, does not equal uh, pharmaceutical, that it must mean some kind of nutritional supplement oh you're just a recreational company no no no. you can make natural pharmaceuticals they do exist two is that you know they can't be standardized they're not gmp again it's not true and then then the third is cost Uh, we we think that we can actually provide natural psychedelics for a lower cost than than synthetic psychedelics
0: thanks for walking through all that ben you're opening up my eyes this whole world that i was previously uncovered this is fascinating for me We need to end the interview here and appreciate your time for joining uh, from lab to launch today. we like to sign off with one question, which is if you were to leave a piece of advice or a tweet that everyone in the industry, whether it be in your industry specifically, or just life sciences in general with kind of a piece of advice or, or something like that, the length of a, of a tweet, let's say, what would you say that, and you knew everybody was going to read it?
1: I would definitely say, you know, let's bring psychedelics back to its roots and back to its natural roots. Psychedelics have have over time and by historical coincidence and because of prohibition and because the first person to identify them and recreate them was a Swiss pharmaceutical synthetic chemist, you know, over time, psychedelics have have become divorced from their, from their natural origins. So Mm. I would say, you know, natural is a viable option. In fact, we'll likely we'll likely proved to be the preferred option. So let's give nature back another chance.
0: I like that, That well said, Ben. Yeah, we, I love having people like you on the show. They're doing something very bold, very different, right? The innovators and shakers in the industry. Um, it's fascinating to be able to talk to people like you and thank you for sharing your insight and your wisdom today. Wish you all the best and all you're doing at Filament Health. And uh, you know, we'll check in with you over time and see how things are going. But for right now, thank you so much for joining and uh, look forward to following
1: what you're doing yep thanks for giving me the opportunity this is fun
0: thank you for listening to this week's episode of from lab to launch brought to you by qualio if you like what you've heard please subscribe and give the show a positive review it really helps us out for more information about qualio our guest today or to be a guest on a future episode please refer to the show notes until next time